This week, we've got a special episode. One of my favorite commentators is behind the mic today. Dara Star Tucker, who's been a guest on this show, is hosting. Dara is so insightful when it comes to cultural critiques of American society, and she's interviewing Catherine Stewart, one of the keenest observers of the religious right today. Catherine has a fascinating book out, The Power Worshippers, about religious nationalism. I think you will really love this conversation. Thanks. That's a, a nice way to think about it. I mean, I think it's really important to see that the politicians know they need religious right support because that is a giant voter turnout machine. I mean, if you listen to them talk about the resources that they are going to bring to bear in election cycles, the number of people that they're going to get knock on doors and make phone calls. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Catherine Stewart, a reporter and author who has covered religious liberty, politics, policy, and education for over a decade. Her book, The Power Worshippers, details how the religious right has risen to power and how they plan to use that power to impose their vision on American society. Catherine, welcome to Burn the Boats. Dara, it's great to be here. I'm glad to be in conversation with you. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you today because... This is a particular area of of interest to me. I can't say it's an area of specialty for me, but it is an area of interest to me. And I have uh, listened to your book and have watched, you know, a f- several interviews that you've done on this topic. And so you are clearly thoroughly researched, and this is an area that it, it's very meaningful to you and very important to you. Can you tell me first how you became interested in this topic of specifically Christian nationalism? Sure. I got interested in this topic back in 2019. I'm sorry, 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my husband and kids. Our daughter was in the first grade. And I learned that something called a Good News Club was coming to her public elementary school. A Good News Club is an after-school club that endorses, I would say, like a, a very deeply fundamentalist version of the Christian faith It targets children at the elementary level, just K through five, kids who are too young to read, often with materials that are picture books, and they use children to recruit other children to the club. I was kind of shocked. You know, I'm a big free speech supporter, and I also don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion at school with their friends, but I do have a problem with kids being deceived into thinking that their public school endorses a particular form of religion. So at the end of the day, you know, I started researching. It seemed surprising that this type of club could be legal and widespread in public elementary schools nationwide. I started doing my research. I attended Good News Clubs from coast to coast. Um, At every Good News Club that I attended, kids were offered candy often or points or prizes for recruiting their peers to the club. And they seemed to be doing a kind of end run around this idea that schools shouldn't privilege or endorse any particular form of religion because the kids attending the club would say things like, I know this religion must be the right religion because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. And Good News Club leaders were clearly trying to take advantage of that, you know, misperception among children that, you know, public schools have a kind of cloak of authority and by placing these clubs in these elementary schools, targeting first graders, second graders, the leaders seem to be taking advantage of that. So that's really my my way in. Once I discovered the legal theory that had allowed these clubs to be placed in public schools, I sort of woke up. I, I thought to myself, wait a second, if they're calling these religious clubs not religion, but speech from a certain point of view and saying that these activities must be allowed because of the free speech clause of the First Amendment. That's a way of doing end run around the principle, the constitutional principle of church-state separation. They're getting funding from the school in the form of facility and purity and, you know, the sort of great public subsidy. And they're taking advantage of the, you know, this perception that the public schools have a kind of you know, government stamp of approval. So that's really my way in, sort of a long way of explaining it. So what was your experience of of religion or with religion before that? Well, I was raised Jewish and my husband is Catholic. So, and we actually sent our children for a time to an Episcopalian school. 
So I'm not uh, opposed to religion. Um, we celebrate all of the holidays. And, you know, I think that religious pluralism and tolerance for religious diversity is a cornerstone of religious freedom in our country. But one of the critical things that makes that possible is the separation of church and state where the government and government institutions are not perceived to privilege any religion over any other, but in short, to promote the freedom of all people to worship and believe as they choose, but not to impose their, any religion on anyone, not to compel anyone to believe or worship if they don't want to or support that religion with their tax dollars if they don't want to. So your in was specifically through the avenue of education. And obviously this is a huge target of this particular group of people, this, this Christian nationalism, which, you know, I am a product of Christian schooling. That's how I came up. Uh, and I went to a Christian college. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, against my will. <laughs> I've visited and they have quite the art collection. Art? <laughs> well, actually, I'm thinking, um, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of um, a different. It's okay. No, their entire campus is just, and if you haven't been there, it looks like someone's concept of what maybe the celestial city is. It, it was <sighs> built in the 1960s and it's just, it's pretty pretty freaky architecture. Um, but so I, you know, I, I definitely understand this, this whole idea of indoctrination, you know, of children. That's how I came up. Um, certainly not in the public school system, but in the Christian school system. And, you know, I was homeschooled quite a bit growing up as well, which is a big tenant of a lot of Christian nationalists. So, but obviously I am African-American. And so my experience of Christian nationalism is heavily impacted by my experience of race in this country. And so that is a particular conversation that I'm interested in as well. So I guess before, before we really kind of get into the meat of the conversation, can you kind of introduce the audience? Because I, I, I really like some of the delineations that you make around what this movement is, the Christian nationalist movement is, and what it isn't. So can you give us kind of your general concept of what Christian nationalism is, at least American Christian nationalism? Sure. Well, Christian nationalism is not a religion and it's not Christianity. I think of it as two things, really. It's an ideology. It's basically the idea that America was founded to be a Christian nation and our laws should be on the bi uh, based on the Bible and that it's the duty of the right kind of Christians. As we know, Christianity in America is incredibly diverse, but it's um, incumbent upon the right kind of Christians to quote unquote, take it back. So that's sort of the ideology. And then, um, it's also a movement. The movement has a very deep organizational infrastructure. It's very politics focused. It consists of a number of features that we can, uh, and organizations that we can group into category. There are right wing policy groups. Just going to throw out a few names, but this is by no means comprehensive. I'm thinking about the Heritage Foundation and the Family Research Council and the American Family Association. And there are right wing legal advocacy groups such as the Federalist Society, which grooms and, and promotes candidates for the courts. There are groups like um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a kind of legal juggernaut of the religious right. And they're behind a lot of the uh, legal efforts to degrade the principle of separation of church and state and, and promote the version of Christianity that they prefer over every other. There are groups like uh, networking organizations like the Council for National Policy that bring together the leaders of a lot of the different organizations with the deep pocketed funders, the people who have the money to sort of keep the, keep it all going. There are right wing think tanks like the Claremont Institute, which is an anti democracy think tank, doesn't neatly fall within the sort of Christian nationalist movement rubric, but kind and, but works sort of within that movement in certain ways. And then you have think tanks that are sort of more religious in their orientation. There are training institutes like the Leadership Institute, which trains and helps promote uh, different, both religious leaders and political leaders. And then there's a sort of vast far-right messaging sphere that does a terrific job of oh, uh, pastoral organizations. I forgot to mention, but that's very important. Plays an enormous role in drawing these sort of mm, right-leaning or conservative-leaning pastors into networks 
and then, you know, convinces them that they've got to get their congregations out to vote for the supposedly biblical candidates or candidates who will do what movement leaders want them to do. So this deep infrastructure is very politics focused. And I think it's really important to know a little bit about how that works so that when we see stuff in the news, we can actually link it to different features of that network. Yeah, it's almost, you almost get the sense that it's like a tree. What we see is vis- is visible above the ground, but there's there's a very deep root system that most people may not be aware of. And uh, then I start to question, like when, I, I've done many videos. I, I do social commentary and kind of explainer videos, video essays and things like that online. So I've done many videos around topics that are, you know, either about this or sort of tangential topics. Um and it just seems like there's, it's just a never ending string that you pull and pull and pull. And there's just always more to it than what you think. And there's absolutely no way that you could possibly, I mean, you did a, an excellent job in your book kind of touching on each of these facets of this movement. Um, but th- it seems, there seems to almost be no end to the organization. Of it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, it's very well funded. And I think when we're, analyzing the movement, it's really helpful to distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. So when you're talking about the followers, you're talking about a very wide range of people with different interests and ideas. And when a lot of them cast their vote, say, for the candidate who promises to defend the traditional family or protect the babies, they're not really make, you know, arguing for major changes in the way our government is run. They're really making a kind of statement about what they value in themselves and their identity. So their identity sort of as, um, you know, you, they're more like, you know, their affiliations with the larger movement may be quite loose. But when they're talking about the leaders of the movement, the leaders of these organizations and uh, different pieces of the infrastructure, they're all about power, um, mm-hmm. public mo- access to public money, policies that privilege their faith and the, and the policies that you know, very importantly, privilege the funders who are, you know, giving huge amounts of money to the organization. Some of these, these funders are really important to understand because a lot of them, I think, are as motivated, if not more motivated by right-wing economic policy than, and less concerned about right-wing positions, the so-called culture war. They want, you know, a lot of them are members of extended plutocratic families and have accumulated enormous amounts of wealth, and they want policies that privilege the accumulation of wealth. So they want, you know, no taxes or low taxes for the rich, minimal regulation of business, minimal regulation that would compel people to respect the environment, or or they want to erode the rights of the workforce and all that. But how do you get the rank and file to vote for policies that are actually going to harm them, not help them. You dangle the culture wars as these little shiny baubles in front of their eyes and get them all worried about a trans kid or, you know, tell them that, you know, there's something called abortion after birth, which there isn't, but they, you know, promote these kinds of um, lies about that in order to get them really anxious about those issues. And then they get them to vote for those candidates. They know very well if you can get people to vote on two or three issues, you can control their vote. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it occurs to me, as I said, I grew up in the evangelical movement, very deeply steeped in the evangelical movement. My father was a minister. My parents were not particularly political, so I didn't grow up with this this type of nationalism. But it was around us. There were always people who were trying to sort of pull us in to this world in one way or another. And as I said, of course, being Black, that yet my experience of it was a lot different. And my lens of all of this is is a little bit different. But it occurs to me, just kind of understanding, knowing how the evangelical world functions, how those church functions, how those churches function versus mainline churches. With a mainline church, you would have an institution that exists. It's a church that's been built. It's probably existed over many, many years. You have pastors that come and cycle through and the congregation is loyal to that that body, that church body versus an evangelical paradigm where you would have a pastor who who himself, usually a man, who himself would establish a church. And therefore that congregation is loyal to that pastor. And which breeds oftentimes cultures of uh, cults of personality, 
So we're going to find one charismatic figure that is central to this whole thing. And we are here out of devotion to him. And what he says is these are edicts that are being issued from on high. He is the person closest to God. So it occurs to me that that framework that an evangelical church member or a Christian would have for understanding their relationship to uh, clergy would be very similar to the relationship that a, you know, let's say a MAGA Republican would have to Donald Trump himself. It is, there's, there's a, a similarity there to me and to a lot of people that is very, very clear. And may that possibly that is one of the reasons, likely that's one of the reasons that someone like Trump or, or, you know, a politician who maybe is not even the most religious or spiritual person, because I don't think Donald Trump's faith really ran very deep before uh, he before uh, he became a politician. Obviously, there was something in the the adherence to this mindset. There was something in them that attracted him, and there was something in in him that attracted them. There was there was a magnetic attraction that happened. Um, and so, what you're saying here is that. The rich and powerful are financially motivated to do what they are doing. And the, the adherence to these movements are oftentimes motivated uh, by altruistic things, such as their belief system and their values. Are there points at which those things intersect? Do they cross? Do we have people like, you know, I look at people like Josh Hawley or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. Uh, do you feel that it's always this sort of cynical exploitation of the the so-called proletariat or the the believers is it always exploitative or are there politicians involved in this movement who truly are believers as well i think some are believers and and some i would question look we can't know it's in people's hearts and we can't know to the extent that they're motivated by both power and belief but often those two things have a, a funny way of justifying themselves especially mm. when power and money are involved people often sort of see that it's in my self-interest, but they see that it's also, they, they perceive that it's also in society's self-interest. But, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, growing up with a black, pa- uh, your, your father was a pastor and growing up in the black church. And something that I think is important to, or I'd like to talk about is the fact that in recent years, some of the more, I would say, astute and seasoned religious right leaders, people like Ralph Reed, are making a huge effort to include uh, pastors of color into their mm-hmm. networks. Um, and particularly, um, they're focused on Latino pastors who are, in, in some instances, uh, charismatic uh, or neo-charismatic and Pentecostal, which mm-hmm. follows a trajectory of what's happening in uh, large parts of Latin America, where Catholicism is sort of on the wane and Pentecostalism or neo-charismatic faith mm-hmm. is on the rise. So, you know, I've attended some of these gatherings that target Latino pastors. And I went to this one in Southern California. There was about 400, it was a mega church in, in Chula Vista. There were about 400 Latino pastors and their families. The speakers were, you know, some of them spoke English through translators and others just spoke Spanish. And they were there to sort of draw in these pastors and get them to get political. Mm. And they said things like, you know, the homosexual agenda is ruining our countries, ruining our families. They passed out sheets of information. They said they're teaching all the stuff in public schools. They showed all this sort of, it was a bizarre mashup of um, graphics and text that allege things that are being taught in sex education classes at the K through three level. Um, and and I, I mean, I found this worksheet alarming because mm-hmm. I have two children and I don't want them to learn stuff that's unscientific or inappropriate or age inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So I had to do a little fact checking and I called all of these different, you know, school districts to see, like, look, look through their sex ed classes and nothing in the, on the material was being taught either in the manner in which it suggested it was taught and much of it was not being taught anywhere in any public school wow. at all. But they get people really worried about this stuff. And then they say you've got to vote your biblical values. You've got to get your people to vote their biblical values. Um, and then they actually had a sheet where they named politicians and said, you know, these Republicans you should vote for because they support, you know, a biblical agenda. And then there were a couple on the sheet that said you can't vote for these because, you know, they're, you know, there's, they, they don't support that. And they both happened 
to be a Democrat. So mm. uh, it's very, um, you know, they've, they've managed, managed to shift the Latino vote in substantial ways between mm. 2016 and 2020. Trump gained eight to 10 points among Latino voters nationwide. Mm. And they concentrate a lot of this messaging in swing districts in swing states that mm. are critical in election cycles. So in certain parts of Florida, certain parts of Texas, you know, if you can, you know, swing a district, you can, if it's the right district at the right time, you can actually swing a state and that could swing an election. So, um, it complicates a lot of the picture. A lot of people, um, characterize the Christian nationalist movement as a white movement. Um, and certainly I think for many of the people in the rank and file who are white, it is an implicitly white movement. Because for them, it involves recovering a nation that was supposedly once both Christian and, <laughs> and as they like to think of it, all white. Mm-hmm. And uh, leaders of the movement certainly paper over the ways that reactionary religion and racism tend to reinforce one another. And racist conspiracies and ideas are suffuse the movement uh, through in, in many different ways. I mean, I... I've attended a few of these Reawaken America tours that are sort of traveling Christian nationalist roadshow put on Mike Flynn and one of the Trump uh, uh, sons is always there, often there, Roger Stone and a whole bunch of other sort of of Trump's most devoted supporters are organizing the event and attend the event. And you hear every racist conspiracy you can possibly imagine, the great replacement, this idea that liberals or, you know, the left, or as they say, the communist left, as everyone to the left of them is a communist, they say they're trying to kill off real Americans and replace them with undeserving people of color, immigrants, whatever. You hear all kinds of crazy, and you actually hear sometimes this last Reawaken America tour that I attended in Las Vegas, I heard some really disgraceful messaging from the, you know, from the stage that I would not repeat here. So there's, you know, and then some of the people affiliated with the Claremont Institute, which is this anti-democracy think tank, are sort of vectors and repositories for all kinds of racial hate. And then, of course, on the policy side, the movement is driving support for politicians that are supporting race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the like. So in this way, the movement, you know, like racism and the movement is inextricably linked. But again, leaders of the movement can see the demographic future very clearly, and they know that the movement will not survive if it remains all white. So they're engaging in that outreach, and they have been successful in some in some areas. It's hard, you know. I will I will say as a person as is a black person not to see it as an explicitly I would say a white supremacist movement, a movement that is inclined to maintain a certain supremacy, um, and it is obviously. Um, I guess a classist movement that exploits the, the populist message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that, that, that framing it in that way around race can sometimes be reductive because obviously, uh, the tent is, is large. And I grew up around a lot of Republican, you know, black Republicans. And so, you know, I know that they exist. I know that they're out there and sometimes they can be the most uh, virulent supporters. Of, of this type of thing. But it just occurs to me when you, you know, you mentioned the Trump sons and things showing up at these meetings and, you know, some of these folks that, that, that lead these movements that very clearly are not terribly religious. They are not specifically, at least not evangelical in their religion, that these environments, and I've seen some clips of these uh, gatherings that, that you're talking about, um, that they have a very evangelical kind of fervor about them. Oh, and people are wearing, there's a lot of religious nationalism from the stage, yeah. uh, expressions of it. And if you look at the t-shirts, there's a lot of, you know, biblical passages. And, you know, I think a lot of these folks didn't identify as religious a few years ago, yeah. frankly. Yeah. But then they see Trump, their hero, who speaks to them. Supposedly, they think he speaks to the common man. And when he appears, he's got Mark Burns to his right, and he's got Robert Jeffress to his left, these two very political preachers who are espouting this religious nationalism and tying it to Trump. And so the people see that and they think, oh, well, that's the right identity to take on because that's part of this. And the reason Trump does it, this sort of 
sanctimony surrounding himself by these holy men is its classic uh, religious, nationalist, authoritarian stuff. He's doing it to bubble wrap himself in sanctimony mm-hmm. to prevent any sort of investigation or criticism of his amorality, of his corruption, of his criminality, his nepotism, and his cronyism. But this is something that religious nationalist leaders do around the world, whether we're talking about Erdogan in Turkey, we've seen it Modi in India, we're seeing some of that stuff, we're seeing this when you look at leaders in places like Iran, when these authority, these leaders bind themselves to reactionary figures in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of government, mm-hmm. then religious nationalism is a great tool for them. Yeah, it's when you speak of that, that the picture that comes to mind and, and again, I'm, I'm not involved in, in evangelicalism anymore. I'm what you would call probably a, like a deconstructing Christian, barely even could be called a Christian anymore these days, but I'm very much connected to that world because every, you know, my family and friends are all still in it. And I'm, what comes to mind is that that picture that was taken in, uh, and I don't even know exactly where it was, but it, there were a group of pastors that had gathered around Trump and they were all, laying hands on him and praying for him. And a visual like that speaks so loudly to the circles that I grew up in because it it is, it's a sanctioning and it's an enveloping, as you said, of him. We are the, we're men of God that you trust and we are giving a sense of spiritual authority to this man to bolster his message and to, um, you know, basically endorse him from a, a spiritual point of view. And that's a very powerful statement to make. And so, you know, for the, the, the folks that I grew up with who are not politically sophisticated, who, who really don't, as you said, maybe like one or two issue voters, that's sometimes all that's needed. That's all that's needed is to say, my pastor endorses him. My pastor says he's good and he's saying all the right things and he's against the right things. And so, therefore, I'm going to go and, and, and push the button, even for people who, are, who have not been involved in politics at all, who may not even have been voters before. Right. And then a lot of these, you know, conservative-leaning pastors are turning their churches essentially into partisan political cells. I went to, you know, I've been to uh, another event called Faith Wins. They held hundreds of events across the country trying to turn out these pastors so they Go to a, I was in this church in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, and dozens of pastors from the local area were there. And they're telling them the, the church is not a cruise ship, the church is a battleship. They're talking about how important it is to get pastors involved in politics. Uh, and then they spread lies about the election. This was, I believe, in 2021. They said, oh, you saw what happened in Arizona. Well, you know what happened in Arizona? This was after a Republican-led investigation turned up nothing. They said, you remember the cyber ninjas? They said, we're going to find all this evidence of uh, illegality. And these Republicans who are, you know, motivated to find illegality said, um, sorry, we, we actually found maybe a half dozen or a couple dozen more votes for Biden than we thought. And yet they were still there talking about, you know, there was a, a, a fellow there who was billed as an election integrity expert. He was a member of the Trump former member of the Trump administration, his name is Hogan Gidley. And he was talking about how dead people were voting. And, you know, there was, he said, you saw what happened in Arizona. Well, frankly, most of the pastors perhaps hadn't been reading the news and, and didn't see the news, or maybe they thought it was fake news. I mean, if you can get people to believe that all fact-check news is fake, and if you can spread your propaganda in that way, and separate people from the facts. It makes them very easy to control. And that's one of the reasons for the spread of conspiracism throughout this movement. It's one of the reasons I find the Reawaken America tours and all the media that sort of thrives on that so deeply, deeply alarming. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention, and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, 
dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work to weekends at the kids' ballgames. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle-release technology, which makes wrinkles magically disappear seriously as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan. I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You got to try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to R-H-O-N-E dot com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's roan.com slash boats. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so, so important. We all have a heartfelt reason to support our blood pressure. In fact, more than half the U.S. population would benefit from blood pressure support. Super Beats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, and they promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews and counting, Super Beats Heart Chews are having their moment. Super Beats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Super Beats Heart Chews each morning and it's really kickstarted my morning routine. After taking my Super Beats Heart Chews, I feel like I have more energy and am ready to take on the day. Super Beats Heart Chews support healthy circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Support your heart health with Super Beats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews and a free full-size bag of turmeric chews valued at $25 by going to BoatsBeats.com. Get this exclusive offer only at BoatsBeats.com. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. Our sponsor, Neurohacker, packs seven of the most science-backed senolytic ingredients into one formula called Qualio Senolytic, and you can take it just two days a month for fast, noticeable benefits, and for a much better aging process. Senolytic ingredients are science-backed to support our bodies natural elimination of zombie cells. My body and energy levels feel about 15 years younger after just a couple months of adding Qualia Senolytic to my diet. I love how easy it is to take. Having more physical and mental energy for my family and friends is such a win in how I show up for those I love. My productivity has doubled. I feel invigorated and enthusiastic again with the daily drive and enthusiasm to get things done. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It's also backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, so you have almost three months to try Qualia Senolytic at no financial risk and decide for yourself. If you're in your late 20s or older, adding Qualia Senolytic to your diet can play a crucial role in combating negative aging symptoms. Go to neurohacker.com slash boats for up to 50% off Qualia Senolytic. And as a listener of Burn the Boats, use code BOATS at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash boats to try Qualia Senolytic with code BOATS and start aging on your terms. The fracturing of the media, the media landscape also means that People can tune into whatever news affirms the beliefs that they already have. And so it would be more difficult, I think, for a movement like this to thrive in the way that it has if we, if we still had three news networks like we did when I was growing up 
because at some point you're going to have to encounter reality. You're going to have to encounter the truth, but they don't, they literally do not have to hear any truth other than what they want to hear. I mean, they started to tell the truth about what was happening with the election on Fox and people started to drift away to Newsmax <laughs> and to OAN. And, you know, we saw the memos that were happening behind the scenes with Tucker Carlson and others saying, oh my God, you know, we, we can't, we can't keep being truthful. We're, we're losing viewers. I know it's really shocking. I mean, I, I also think that there's some parts of the media system that are frankly in denial because they've thrived for years on this idea that they should cover, cover both sides with respect as a neutral observer. And it would certainly, you know, make it easier for them if they could do so and stay above the fray. But, you know, it's like saying the earth is round, the earth is flat. Right. Discuss. <laughs> you know, when one side is engaged in a war on the truth, and the other side is trying to talk about policy in the real world. We can't really both sides this. Yeah. One of the problems, and it's been quite successful, is that the Republican Party, you know, I go to these conferences, these, you know, road to majority conferences, or they call it pray vote stand. They used to call it values voters. And they portray anyone to the left of them as a communist, as a, a heretic, godless. You know, they use every word in the book that they can. Not as a loyal, like, so, so they don't see the Democratic Party as a loyal opposition. You know, the idea used to be a little bit like we have different ideas about how to get there, but we both basically, we all want the basic, you know, basically the same things. We want a secure and prosperous country filled with, you know, happy families that can make ends meet. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing is just a complete uh, breakdown of civil discourse on one side and on the, left, I still hear, you know, at every like talk I give or whatever, how can we reach them? How can we talk to them? How can we draw people out of conspiracism? You know, my my Aunt Sally or or my father-in-law or or whoever, you know, started, you know, now believes in these great placement, QAnon, all these kinds of crazy conspiracies that all, you know, that all roads lead to Trump. When people fall down that rabbit hole, those rabbit holes they're often given this idea Trump is our savior. He's, you know, fighting the good fight. He's fighting on behalf of the white hats or whatever they call it, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I still hear, you know, we need to, you know, sympathize with their issues and their concerns. I really do not hear that on the right. I just hear uh, mischaracterization after mischaracterization. So do you feel like there is a way to draw them in to uh, curtail this? Or is there, is that, do you feel like that's a futile conversation? I think those conversations are really worth having for people in your circle still. I, I, I don't think that that's where you should put all of your energies. I think the right has done this, by the way, over five decades through the investment, both money and also man and woman power uh, and the infrastructure building of their movement. And this is something that I think was very much neglected among those of us who believe in the principles of pluralism and equality and who seek to preserve our democracy. I think we need to, although there are people who are doing it now, you know, invest in shoring up, you know, institutions and organizations that promote uh, democracy, uh, that get out the vote. We need to protect the vote. There are, are frankly, you know, I think more of more people in America who believe in equality and pluralism and democracy than people who don't, but they vote in disproportionate numbers because they get the churches out to vote. So you don't need a majority to win elections. You just need a disproportionately activated minority. And look at a country where 40 to 50% of people don't turn out to vote. And an additional number have their votes essentially stolen from them through race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression, and all that. You know, it just takes... That minority that, you know, if a pastor can get 90% of his congregation to vote, oh my gosh, you know, those numbers can really make differences in not just local elections, but, you know, collectively in national elections. We, we can't forget that a lot of politics is local. One of the things the right is doing now with its Moms for Liberty groups and the sort of, you know, fiction that public schools are, you know, turning children into little communists is that they're activating people at the local level. It's like the Tea Party all over again. And of course, it's supported by um, infrastructure coming from like the movement, the Christian nationalist movement. I mean, I remember I attended a 
Family Research Council seminar called School Board Boot Camp, where they're actually getting their people to do this. Well, if no one else gets activated, then they're going to win. So it's really important to get engaged in local politics. And I think it's worth spending more of your energy sort of doing that. But those conversations with people who you love or people who you've been friends with in the past or are still friends with are, I think, still worth having. Um, it's really helpful to try to find some kind of common ground and then slowly draw people back into reality. I'm thankful, as I said, because, you know, being a black person who grew up in this movement, I'm thankful to not have a ton of family members who have been just pulled down into the abyss with this stuff. There are definitely those that have been. But I, I kind of almost feel for for white folks who grew up in evangelical circles because it is so common. It's so common to have family members who I, I have friends who don't talk to their parents anymore. It's awful. It's fractured families. Family relationships have been severed over this kind of thing. And I'm thankful I did not grow up in a deeply politicized church environment, um, though those folks were always um, around. This movement, I, I know that one of your aims is to take the focus really off of the necessarily the cultural or religious aspect of it and really view it through a political lens. And the movement is so well funded. I watched a YouTube video uh, a, a while back on just like where the funding is is coming from these groups that, you know, put out this type of messaging and where where they're really getting their funding from. They have always been well-funded. I saw a conversation that you had with uh, Frank Schaefer oh, yeah. the other day, and that's interesting. I would love to talk to him eventually because we, at ORU, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, we had to view his father's films for our humanities courses. We had four years of humanities, and every year we would watch his father in those short pants and those grainy, crackly films, you know, how, how should we then live? So I'm very, very familiar with Francis Schaefer, but he mentioned that his father his father's films had been funded by the the DeVos family, I think. And so there has always been this sort of deep pocketed, you know, funding of, of these movements. Why do you, and there are billionaires who are funding, you know, a lot of this stuff now, uh, the, the Ben Shapiro organization is being funded by billionaires. That all of it is being funded by billionaires. Why do you think that they have been so successful in attracting these moneyed folks to their their movement because I don't think a lot of these maybe some of them are 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 truly religious or spiritual people but a lot of them I would imagine are not well again it's pointing to those those policies that benefit the accumulation of great wealth I mean a lot of the religious right funders I'm thinking about the DeVos Prince family juggernaut I'm thinking about mm -hmm. the Skype Foundation State Policy Network they're not just funding like religious right initiatives. They're also funding organizations like the Freedom Foundation, which seeks to, they're promoting what they call right to work laws. They're union busting, you know, mm. so they're, so it's that, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, the religious right is claiming to defend the American family, but they're driving support for politicians and policies that are actually making it much harder for so many families to succeed. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's one of those ways that you get people to vote against their own self-interest. I, I mean, it, it kind of occurs to me when you talk about the money, where the money comes from, that everyone wants to be a part of a winning team. You know, everyone wants to be a part of something that is succeeding and that is thriving. Do you feel that the money and the funding have maybe been a bit of a catalyst for the success of the movement in and of itself. The excitement, the fervor around the movement is the money, the motivator. Absolutely. It's so funny. I mean, money can do a lot. It can mm -hmm. um, give you professional training. It can make everything look nice. It can mm -hmm. come up with really great marketing. Right. You know, I mean, that's one thing the religious right is really good at. They market test stuff. Some of the money comes from McClellan. I mean, we could talk more about the money later, but they invest in messaging, marketing, and they do it. It's interesting. So the religious right messaging on abortion, for example, is very responsive to our time. I remember going to this, so is it the Americans United for Life gathering in and uh, this one woman said to me, a lot of my peers, she was a college student, she said, are really sensitive to issues of equality. So we were saying abortion is discrimination based on their age. And that's an, a message that we found really resonates with our peer group. So they're, they're segmenting 
uh, messaging, not just for age group mm-hmm. and focusing on the youth, but also focusing on grandmothers and mothers and, and men and all different sectors. But they're also shifting their messaging. Like every year, uh, the March for Life has a different theme. And meanwhile, on the other side, you have the same slogans that have been, you know, in use for, for decades. And still, so many people understand that message, those fundamental messages that a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, support abortion rights in some form. But I just think about the marketing and the money that goes into the other side, and especially the money that goes into legal advocacy. It turns out a lot of money can buy a lot of law. Mm. The amounts of funding that go through the Federal Society and its related organizations is astounding. A few years ago, Robert O'Hara, the Washington Post, did a really spectacular investigation of the Federal Society and its head, Leonard Leo, and talked about, I mean, it was, I believe it was like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, you'd have to go back and look at the piece, but it's well worth reading. Um, and what they do is they find the perfect plaintiffs. They, they bring the right cases to the right courts at the mm-hmm. right movement moment. And in doing so, they, they, they sort of create these novel legal building blocks that can build up to a very big win. That's what they did with the Good News Club decision back in 2001. And that's what they've continued to do over time. Hmm. It's hard not to see this through a le- the lens of, of, white supremacy. It's hard for me not to see this through the lens of white supremacy. And then I would imagine for someone who is in the LGBTQ community, it's hard not to see this through the lens of, you know, very much of, of like anti, you know, anti-gay or anti-trans, um, because I feel like uh, it's it's difficult to maintain the fervor, the motivation for these movements. If there isn't something that you're kicking against, if we can't find a common enemy it's difficult to um, organize people in this way for this length of time, and the amount of money, the time of the amount, the amount of time, the the length of time that this has happened. Um, it's it's hard to say that the dominant white white dominance is not a motivator. That the dominance of um, you know or or the the desire to um, squelch a, a particular part of the, the population is not the motivator for this. It would be really hard to make that case, I think. Every authoritarian movement needs a scapegoat. Yeah. 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 It, it would be hard not to say, see it through that lens. And so obviously there are a group of people that are very much determined to stay in power. And then there are those of us who are not necessarily part of that group who who would find it in our best interest to ally ourselves with that group of people and say, well, my, you know, the safest position that I can take mm-hmm. is to stand beside this group and to stand in lockstep with these people. And maybe I can just get a little bit of the spillover and a little bit of the benefit from being a part of this group. Yeah. I mean, look, sexuality issues are the rocket fuel of the movement. It's a movement that insists on gender order and uh, LGBTQ identity flies in the face of that and drives them crazy. And now it's like, I get, you know, I get email from all of the, you know, a lot of the different organizations and it's like all LGBTQ all the time because Mm. uh, in particular, like trans issues, because those are the issue, that's the issue that polls well for them in a way that uh, frankly, abortion rights really doesn't, but make no mistake, they are committed to a gender order. And in terms of, you know, I think the movement leaders, um, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are smart enough to sort of distance or, or canny enough to distance themselves from overt expressions of racism. But racism is inextricably bound up with the movement overall. I kind of feel bad when I think of the LGBTQ community because now it's like, oh, well, we, we knew black people and, and people, other people of color. We knew what it was like to be the target, but it's no longer acceptable to make race the issue that it was, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. It's no longer acceptable and it's not going to fire people up quite as much. As you said, it's always kind of there underneath the surface, mm-hmm. but it's, we are, we are not the clear target, but it is okay to say, I don't like, I don't like gay marriage. I don't believe in that. I don't feel that trans people should exist. I am, I am actively against these people. And what I am doing is clearly and thoroughly motivated by my opposition to their right to exist. 
but they can't say that about us anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's a new target. And then also the, the sort of groomer label is incredibly toxic. Mm-hmm. You want to look for groomers. I mean, we can find lots of them in different sectors of uh, religious organizations, um, yes. but to call you know, not just uh, gay people groomers, but also to, um, you know, call any public school teacher who happens mm-hmm. to read a book having to do with acceptance and equality, a groomer. I mean, it's, it's such a, it actually makes, inhibits the, the ability to prosecute child, like real child abuse, which is mm-hmm. a scourge. And it's, it's so disrespectful to, to, to the victims, uh, as well as, and I'm talking about the children, the child mm-hmm. victims of real child abuse. And so, and it, it's classic authoritarian, uh, can we say fascist? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if you would use that word. Scapegoating tactics. Right. Yeah, I, it's just kind of crazy to me that in this current age now that that the idea of the exploitation of children can now be politicized. Now, suddenly, this is a huge issue that we just have to deal with. We have to save the children. And oh, my goodness, because I've, I'm guessing that this is all sort of tied to the Jeffrey Epstein thing. And when that happened, then suddenly now we can create this narrative around the left being, you know, going off to their private islands and taking the blood of children and all of these crazy conspiracy theories. But considering the amount of abuse of children that has gone on within the church, that has been obfuscated, has been covered up, that has been completely ignored over, over many, many years. And suddenly, you know, we have movies coming out now about saving the children and how important this issue is when it can be tied to a political agenda. And I just, I find that so deeply offensive. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it just, it, it, it amazes me that people for whom morality is supposed to be central could sort of uh, bifurcate this issue in their minds and and not take an active position of justice and of advocacy until there is a political motivation to do so i don't think i will ever be able to get my head around that no it's always shocking to see that people can say this with a straight face and in a in a context you know a, a big context where they're they're not just, you know, lying. They're proud of their lies. Do you feel that they feel that they are lying? And we're talking about the common person, the, the, you know, the, the churchgoer. We're not talking about politicians or billionaires. Do you feel that the person on the ground who's now just, you know, saving the children, do you feel that they are actively lying about their concern for saving the children? Listen, I think propaganda works. And I think that people, a lot of the people who have been drawn into this, world of conspiracism truly believe, but that doesn't excuse their actions. And it certainly doesn't, uh, and, and the hate that they may express. Listen, there have been all kinds of conspiracies and scape, uh, throughout history and scapegoats of those conspiracies. And there have been leaders throughout history that have perpetrated scapegoats. I mean, let's think about, I don't know, the Uyghurs or, or any other sort of oppressed group that, you know, people have been uh, over time or throughout history have, have, have spread, spread lies about. I mean, it doesn't excuse the abuse that they're subjected to. And it certainly, uh, I think, you know, some of the leaders certainly know better. They know exactly, some of them know exactly what they're doing. And it's disgraceful. They're doing it just to gain power. And they really just think, well, you know, those folks are just, um, you know, they dehumanize them. They, they don't think of them as, as real people. I was talking the other day to a, a friend who's Australian, and she said that the indigenous people in Australia, when uh, white people came and colonized the country, they classified in, indigenous people as flora and fauna, not as people, but as part of the flora and fauna of Australia. I mean, this is just an old story, you know? Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. If you can dehumanize people, if you can yeah. call them groomers, or if you can see mm. them all as godless, atheist, communist, satanic, right. you know, then um, then it justifies anything that you'll do to them, not just stripping away their rights, but also, you know, putting their lives in peril. I'm sure you saw Mike Huckabee uh, yesterday went on um, Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is one of the largest religious networks. This election, next election, if Trump is not allowed to run and win, 
<laughs> um, this election will be, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, decided by, not by ballots, but by bullets, or it's the last election that will be decided by ballots, not bullets. You know, the threat of physical violence and political violence in particular uh, does not run far from the, surf of the for surface of this movement. I recently found a lengthy book excerpt by Kevin Slack, who's a professor at Hillsdale College, which is a religious school in Michigan that is very involved in the charter movement and is considered a kind of one of the sort of intellectual nerve centers of uh, movement leaders. And Claremont Institute is this very anti-democracy think tank. So they excerpted a lengthy piece of his forthcoming book in which he said, I'm paraphrasing here again, like it's time for Republicans to ally themselves with the AR-15 crowd. Mm. I mean, he's, you know, there are other folks who are adjacent or involved in the Claremont Institute who have said similar kinds of things where one of them actually wanted to, he posited that he should become a warlord when, you know, society breaks down and, uh, you know, he's very pro-militia. I mean, this this is a threat of political violence and Mm -hmm. it, it must be taken seriously. And here's the thing, not all Republicans believe that, but the leadership has not excluded those extremists. There are, I mean, it just wasn't a few years ago, but a few years ago when that kind of language would have been allowed nowhere near the center of the Republican Party. But there's, you know, there have been great shifts over and very, if you look at it, you know, very rapid shifts. If you look at the sweep of history over the last of the last decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard you say in, in one interview, I don't remember which interview it was, but I heard you say that this was a this this was a faction of the Republican Party that they basically um, this kind of hyper nationalistic religious wing of the Republican Party that they felt that they could exploit for their gain up to a point. And now this this faction of the party has essentially taken over the yeah. party. And now they are unable to function without their sanctioning or their approval. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the latest Republican debate, you know, we, we like how many folks on that debate stage said that they would not pardon Donald Trump if he were convicted. I mean, I think it was maybe one, maybe two. And then if you look at the sort of a representative of the sort of Republican Party of old. I'm thinking about H- Asa Hutchinson off the bat. People are like, who is Asa-, Asa Hutchinson? You know, he's perhaps positing himself as a representative of the old guard and he's polling what, 2%? Mm-hmm. You know, the movement has really unfortunately been taken over by this movement and particularly other radical factions of the right. So I hear, you know, I, I think what I hear you saying is that this is, it's sort of a three-tiered situation. You have billionaires, funders at the top who are motivated by uh, the finances of it. They want to be able to retain as much of their money as possible. They want to be able to influence policy, you know, maybe even environmental policy or po- policies around regulation of, of corporations or taxes or whatever it is. They are protecting their financial interests. And so they are kind of the, you know, uh, the, the thrust of, of being able to fund the entire thing. Then you have the politicians who are often having their pockets being lined by these billionaires. And obviously their motivation is to stay in power, is to retain as much power as possible and to self-aggrandize. And then you have the, the kind of lowly ad- adherents and many of them are motivated by true ideology. And uh, this sort of three-tiered system, I mean, I'm, am I interpreting this correctly, that this three-tiered system, they basically are working in tandem and, and feeding one another and, and propelling this thing uh, forward? That's an, a nice way to think about it. I mean, I think it's really important to see that the politicians know they need religious right support because that is a giant voter turnout machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to them talk about the resources that they are going to bring to bear in an election cycle, it's a number of people that they're going to get knock on doors and make phone calls. And there have been very sophisticated data initiatives where they will actually look at people's, you know, Facebook feeds and other social media and figure out, oh, do you follow NASCAR? Are you a member of the NRA? And then, and other measures. And have you ever signed an anti-abortion thing? And if they find those people, they will actually push stuff into their media 
you know, targeted media that will wow. get them to vote a certain way. There was a, an initiative called United and Purpose that has actually, that did that. And they've described that, um, on record, you know, in video, the head of that organization described that on video. They're sort of all the stuff that they used to do was public. And then when it got written about, they, uh, it all of a sudden their website went blank, basically, you know, splash page and nothing else. And they, they haven't spoken too openly about that. But there is an initiative called Documented that has done a really wonderful job of getting audio from some of these gatherings, uh, the uh, UIP, Ziklag, other organizations that are a bit under the radar, Council for National Policy. And they speak very openly about their goals in, in these things. So, And what's the end game? What is, what's their goal? What is the ultimate goal here? What do they want to see? Well, you know, one could be glib and say they want power, they want policies that they like, they want access to public money, access to private funding, but the ultimate goal is power. But then if you think about what they're really doing, a lot of it is destroying, like with education, we didn't, you know, going back to where we started our conversation, public education, religious right has a long-standing war on public education. And bear with me for just a minute. 1979, Jerry Falwell said, I hope to see the day when there are no more public schools Churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. Well, how's that going to work in a society as irreducibly diverse as ours? What they really want to do, I think, you think about the destruction of all these institutions, institutions that have sustained our democracy over time, the judiciary, education, voting rights. They want to dismantle a lot of these, these things. And it really is the destruction of our democracy itself. So what comes after that? I mean, you know, it's it's a bit of a mystery. You know, some of them speak, you know, about a wonderful order where a certain type of Christian, not all, you know, a certain type of Christian, if you're the right kind, will dominate every aspect of society, including education, finances, law, media, entertainment. They talk about the Seven Mountains Mandate. What does that look like in practice? I mean, a sort of theocratic autocracy? Is that what they're after? Are they after the kind of system that they have in Iran? Is that what they're after? The folks I grew up with, yes, I would say yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that's the end game for them. I don't know what the end game is for billionaires and I don't know what the end game is for the politicians who maybe are not ideologically as, as plugged into this as they would have you believe. But I know that, that the evangelical community that I grew up with that is the goal. It is a theocracy that they don't necessarily believe in, in the kind of democracy that our nation is, is built on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what, what's the end game for billionaires? What's the end game for the politicians? Do you have a sense of that? Maybe the billionaires think that under that system, it's a cronious system. They're going to be the ones who are, you know, favored. And, uh, as opposed to a place like Poland, where a lot of business leaders have actually been arrested recently because they're critical of, of the government. Mm. which is appalling. But, you know, there are always moneyed interests that ally with authoritarian power. Maybe they're thinking, well, those, you know, people, this little people can't manage their own affairs. So if we just give them the culture wars and we all get them to believe in the right religion and have them, you know, learn a sort of, you know, the right ideology, they'll be on board with this and they'll be happy. Maybe they think that. Mm. You know, we talk about all this organization and this funding and this, you know, it just it, it's just so overwhelming. It's so extensive when you really start to dig into it. And I just wonder, is does anything similar exist uh, on the on the left? Is is there a counter? Are there counter movements? Are these equal and opposing forces or are they just completely have they completely out organized and have completely out is the left completely out moneyed? It's not a, a, like an equivalent, sort of, they're not, the both sides are not equivalent. We don't really have any, I speak incredibly broadly, those of us who, you know, who want to sustain our democracy don't have a sort of like systematic machine quite the, the way that they do. But there are a lot of folks who are working to sustain our voting rights, working to support our democracy, working to defend public education, working to try to sustain our rights. So I think the takeover of the, of the courts is really consequential. You know, mm -hmm. movement leaders know if you can get the courts, you can get the country. And that's why that's going to be a really, a real generational struggle. We can't forget that Mitch McConnell 
and his allies packed the courts. No, he wouldn't allow Obama to actually legitimately appoint uh, Merrick yes. Garland in the, his last year. Merrick Garland, who is like no, you know, hardly a, a lefty radical, you know. Yeah. But um, that's a way of packing the courts and then forcing through, you know, Amy uh, Coney Barrett at the last minute. Like that's a way of packing the courts. So the courts have been packed and we're going to be dealing with that for a while. But I think it's a moment really for determination. I don't think we can ever underestimate what one person can do. And I think that, again, like one thing that gives me that I have to remind myself all the time is that there are more of those of us who want to preserve our democracy than those who want to tear it down. There are more of us who, who value pluralism and equality than those of us who, uh, who don't. So I think that I used to think it was sort of like a plus one, you know, how, when you were like young, I don't know, when I was young, I'd go to a, you know, go to a party or, you know, a, a show or something. And I, you have your plus one. I think everybody needs to have a plus one when we go to the, the polls or, you know, figure out how to get involved. Like there are things we can do as individuals, but there are things we can only do when we join together. Well, thank you for leaving us on a, a slightly hopeful note, Catherine, <laughs> after taking in such daunting information. But I think the work that you're doing is, is so important. Um, and I'm, I appreciate you for taking time to research what you have researched and to write the book, uh, the, the power worshipers that, that you have written. And where can people find you online? I'm at catherinestewart.me. That's my website. It needs to be updated, but I should do that. And, uh, <laughs> And then you can buy Power Worshippers on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Bookshop or anywhere else that books are sold. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Catherine, here on Burn the Boats. Everyone, make sure to check out her book, The Power Worshippers. The link is going to be in the description. And um, I've just had a wonderful time talking to you about a fascinating subject. I'm, I'm a communicator. And I, like I said, I do video essays on this kind of thing online. And I'm going to be talking more about this, this very thing on my platform. So thank you for helping me to get a deeper understanding of this topic. Thank you so much, Dara. It's really great to connect with you today. Thanks again to Catherine for joining me. Make sure to check out her book, The Power Worshippers. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.